What we're gonna be looking at today is what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the awaited anointed King. Christ is not his uh, last name. It is a title that belongs to him. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the awaited and anointed King. And so today we're gonna look at what it means that he's that. We don't have much time for small talk today. I spent all of that time uh, uh, not having my mic on. And so we're gonna jump right in. Notes are gonna be in the chat. You can get those pulled up if you'd like to follow along. But let's pray. And then we're gonna get into Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse one. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, specifically that this, this book, this library of collections of the people of God um, continues to speak into our lives. And specifically today, as we come into the eighth chapter of Mark's gospel, that here that this, this biography, this eyewitness report of the works and teachings of Jesus continues to be so timely to us today. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. May we not be hard-hearted, but may we be receptive to what you're bringing us to see in the text. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let's jump in with Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse one, where in the biography, the story of Jesus, Mark recounts, <clears throat> in those days, when again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. He being Jesus called his disciples to him. And he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they, his disciples, set them before the crowd. And they also had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said that these should all be set before them, the fish as well as the bread. And this great crowd was satisfied as they ate. They took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full of bread and fish. And there were about 4,000 people. And then Jesus sends them away. Now, this is an incredible story, this, this feeding of the 4,000 account. But one of the reasons why it's so strange and so interesting is it maybe you don't remember, but just a few chapters earlier, we had another feeding just like this. Back in chapter six, verses 30 through 44, Jesus feeds not the 4,000, but the 5,000. And so it's a same miracle, Jesus taking, blessing, breaking, feeding, having leftovers after feeding a huge majority of people. It's the same miracle, but why doesn't Mark just include these in one story? For the sake of his narrative or, or put them together. Why not just say that, you know, one time over the course of, you know, it seems to be just a couple of days here that Jesus fed, you know, 9,000 people over the course of a few days. Why does he split these up? And what does that mean for the way that he's helping us discover Jesus? It helps as we understand that there is uh, the same miracle happening, but different recipients of the miracle, different audience, a different crowd. And be it that different crowd, a different purpose behind the miracle. 
What do I mean by this? Well, back in chapter six, verses 30 through 44, we just talked about this a minute ago, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. When you look at that account, who is in the crowd? It is a majority Jewish crowd. It's a bunch of Jewish people hanging out with Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. They're in Jewish territory. And even Mark's account is he has all these little hyperlinks and these little mentions throughout the story, different than this one, where he makes it evident that this is almost like a new exodus, a new people of Israel being fed in the wilderness with this miraculous bread. It's this new exodus moment that Jesus is leading. But here in eight, verses one through nine, Who is the crowd in the text that we're looking at? Well, there's a few hints. The first is in the beginning in verse one where uh, Mark writes, in those days, in those days, what what days, right? Well, we look back at the end of chapter seven. Now this is actually like kind of a a flyover space from where we were a couple weeks ago before our anniversary uh, service. These, These two healings that happen right here that we're kind of including within this week though it wasn't part of the weekly Bible passage. And what these two healing accounts are, are both with Gentiles, non-Jewish people, outsiders to the faith. So the first is with the Syrophoenician woman who her daughter has this unclean spirit. She comes before Jesus. And and after this kind of going back and forth of the relationship between Jesus as the Jewish Messiah to the Gentile people groups, Jesus heals this woman's daughter. Right after that, Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory in the region of the Decapolis. That was where the uh, demon-possessed man with the legion, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Gentile territory, Jesus is moving around through here. He heals a deaf man. And so in the beginning of verse eight, when we find this healing story comes in those days, it is during the days of Jesus's ministry among these pagan, non-Israelite, non-Jewish people. And then even another little link can be there at the end of chapter three, where Jesus just kind of oddly remarks, and some have come from far away. What is this far away? This is actually a little uh, phrase that's often used throughout the scriptures to talk about Gentiles, non-Jewish people in distant lands. Uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah are are two examples of, of this common theme. So maybe you see it already, but what, to make it explicit, what's the thread that runs through this story? What is the audience that's receiving the 4,000 this feeding? It's Gentiles, Gentiles. It's the, the, uh, the Greek word that Mark's writing in is this word ethnos. The ethnos is what we translate as the nations or Gentiles, or, or it's, it's people that are outside, they're non-Jewish people groups right? Referred to as a shorthand. So it's the, the ethnos, the Gentiles. It's actually where we get our uh, English word ethnic from. It's the idea of the other ethnic. It's other ethnic groups. It's this incredible picture of this ethnic vision of Jesus where he's bringing together people from all the nations, feeding them and bringing them together. So the question is then, if there's all this new Exodus imagery with the feeding of the 4,000, what's going on here with the feeding, I'm sorry, the 5,000 in this Jewish moment, all of these Gentiles are being fed. What is he driving home? Now, okay, we got to pause and we're gonna do some background work on the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the times of Jesus so that we understand the importance of what's happening in this feeding. You see, in the beginning of the story, Israel was chosen through uh, Abraham to... Uh, to be God's, this, this chosen possession, these chosen people. And specifically in Genesis 18, they were chosen so that all the families, that is all the nations, there's that ethnos language there in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. All of the nations, all of the peoples, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. 
This was the starting point of Israel's whole story was that through them, all would be blessed. But over the course of Israel's history, this devolved into a superiority. All they tend to focus on was the fact that they had been chosen by God and not the purpose that they had been chosen by God. And then this ended up leading to tension and enmity between the nations. There was great difficulty, great challenges, lines that were drawn between Jew and Gentile. And it was a firm line that had been drawn. Even the book of Jubilees, this was a Jewish uh, writing uh, written about a hundred years before Jesus's time. So it's totally within the worldview and time of Jesus uh, wrote, uh, it was a call for the Jewish people to separate from the Gentiles. Do not eat with them, do not associate with them, do not business with them, for their works are unclean. At this time, Gentiles were remarked as being like dogs. They were seen as unclean. The purity laws from two weeks ago of why you would wash your hands if you were in the marketplace was in case you bumped up against an unclean outsider Gentile. All this comes together that the Israelite relationship with the Gentile people, the Jew-Gentile relationship was that Israel's mission had become Israel's enemy. In short, Israel had failed to be Israel. They had failed to be a blessing to the nations as they'd been called to be since day one. And so one of the things that Mark's getting at in this story is not just, oh, isn't Jesus feeds us and he, he satisfies us. And even when we don't have anything to feed ourselves with, Jesus is able, yeah, totally. But, but Mark is driving a point home here alongside the feeling of the Jewish people is Jesus here has come to be the true Israel. He has come so that all the families of the world, all the nations, all the people shall be blessed that they are included in the new Exodus alongside the Jewish people and they are included in his kingdom movement. You see this in Jesus's compassion for them there in verse two, that he spends time teaching them for three days is what Jesus remembers. One little interesting note is the difference between the fact that Jesus is teaching the Gentiles for three days, they stick with him. It's like a retreat they go on with Jesus versus what tends to look like an afternoon with the Jewish people back in chapter six. Three days of sitting at Jesus's feet out in the wilderness, listening to him teach. They're spending time with this Jesus who has compassion for them. He's teaching them. When he feeds them, they find themselves satisfied. And then finally at the very end there, it says that he sent them away. And this is a really interesting little note here is there's a lot of words for being sent out or sent away or dismissed. Mark uses a particularly rare Greek word that links to the idea of liberation or release. He's winking at new Exodus imagery that's happening here. These Gentiles are being included in this new movement, this new Exodus, this new freedom, this new deliverance, this new kingdom movement that Jesus is kicking off. It's so, so good to see what Jesus is doing here and how Mark is bringing it all together. So Jesus is bringing understanding and an experience of himself to these formerly, you know, ignorant might sound like a bad word, but these, these people that did not see Jesus, did not see the kingdom, that had been ostracized out by the Jewish people for so long that Jesus is bringing them in and allowing them to see him. Jesus's ministry is the ostracized, the outsiders, we find in Jesus that they are not ostracized by God and they are not outside of his compassion. They're not outside of this new thing that he's kicking off. There's this huge element of racial reconciliation that's happening here of the nations being brought back together under the person and work of Jesus. Now, beyond just the ethnic dimension, this is a timely word in a moment where uh, our nation and our world are increasingly splintered and fractured, creating dividing lines of clean and unclean. Do not associate with them. Don't even eat with them. 
So just to set before you, who is your Gentile? Who in your perception is the outsider? The one that is unclean? This may be for some along a racial line. This may be for others along cultural lines of of even how certain people carry themselves and what they're into. And we don't have the perfect interests like me. And so we really don't get along. And they're kind of, you know, they're out there because they listen to Nickelback or whatever. It might be along religious lines for those that have been raised in a more conservative, either Christian or another religious home that they believe or don't believe this or that. And so because of that, the line goes up. The social dimensions or most prominent in this moment is the political lines, which is just as strong as the Jew-Gentile relationships at this time. There's enmity, there's tension, little moments of violence that it seemed like there was something going on underneath the service, but it hadn't broken out into anything crazy yet. So you don't eat with them, don't even associate with them. And, and the lines get thicker and thicker between one another. And Jesus comes and almost as you put the two together is Jesus is feeding, you know, he's got a meal with the Republicans and then he's got a meal with the Democrats and he's hanging out and he's feeding everybody and he's teaching everybody. Jesus loves, pursues, feeds, heals those you deem as outsiders. Are you Jesus's follower? To be his follower means that you follow him in his mission of healing, caring for, being present with and compassionate for those that don't think, look, act, or speak the way that you do. Even more than this, simultaneously, those, are, those of you who maybe are, are, are checking in, maybe you're new or newer to this whole Jesus thing or to collective, you feel that the story of your life and who you are and the way that you see yourself and the way that you feel seen by others has led to you feeling ostracized and an outsider, particularly like the Gentiles from the people of God. May you see in this story a portrait of the Jesus who has compassion for the ostracized outsider and their experience for you. That he has come with a desire to satisfy, to bring you close, to teach and to, you know, to heal, to set you free. That Jesus has this driving force. He has not come simply for the religious Jews, but even the, the unknowing, ignorant, whatever language you want to use, pagan Gentiles. And so everybody on that spectrum, you and I are on, and he's here for us. So this story here is kind of like an optician's a faux raptor. I had to look up what this thing's called this week, but it's the big, you know, glasses thing that they put on you. If you remember Justin Timberlake's the 2020 album on the cover, uh, you know, and, and you know, with me having glasses, this is like every couple of years I have to go in and number one or number two, number one or number two. And you slowly begin to have your eyes reset where you can actually see what is right in front of you. In the same way, these stories over the past few weeks and particularly here today, that this is Mark going number one or number two and he's clicking us in to see Jesus for who he truly is. And in this moment, he's wanting us to see Jesus as the true Israel leading a new Exodus that is not just Jew, but also Gentile, which means everybody is invited to be a part of this new movement that he's doing. In particular, it's the ostracized outsiders that he is welcoming and inviting to be a part of it. In particular, the ethnic outsiders, the Gentiles. So again, our vision of Jesus here is being blown up. It's being expanded. But what about others and their vision of him? Let's keep going in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and he went again to the other side. 
So the word Pharisees shows up and they arrive on the scene and we already know how this story is gonna go. As soon as the Pharisees show, we know what's gonna happen. An argument breaks out specifically over their demands for a sign from heaven. So two questions emerge. Why does Jesus request or reject their request? All throughout Mark, people have been coming and asking for healings, asking for miracles from Jesus. And now for whatever reason, the Pharisees show up and they ask for one. And Jesus is like, heck no, gets in the boat, leaves, see you guys later. He pieces out. So that's the first question. Why does Jesus so adamantly reject their request? And second, why did Mark set this story immediately after those three Gentile inclusion stories of the woman with the demon, uh, the unclean spirit, the daughter with the unclean spirit, the deaf man, and then he, the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles. Why is this story right here? And why is Jesus so adamantly reject it? Many uh, big Bible nerds and scholars point out the key to understanding this is in their request, that it is not just for a sign, it's not just for a miracle, but it's a sign from heaven. Now track with me here, because this is, this is a big deal. Sign from heaven is a way of talking about an apocalyptic sign, something which points to is Israel's deliverance and at that time, the other nation's destruction. One great uh, uh, scholar who kind of pulled all this together, he's linked right there. You can click on the Gibson link in the notes if you want to uh, geek out on this this week to see what they're getting at. But a sign from heaven in effect is what they're talking about is we're looking for like, you know, a flood like in Noah's days to wipe out everybody. We're thinking plagues like what came on Egypt. We're thinking fire from heaven like the prophets. We're thinking destruction and death on the Gentiles. Sign from heaven, this is what they're asking for. They're asking for a destructive event on the enemies of Israel. This is such a common idea that even the disciples are seen thinking this way in Luke chapter nine, where Jesus goes into a Gentile village and he's preaching and teaching, but nobody wants to take it. So they reject Jesus. Jesus leaves town. On the way out, the disciples go to Jesus. Hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on that village? And Jesus has to like, no, that's not what this thing is about. So this sign from heaven motif as this being linked into the Messiah's arrival is totally consistent within the worldview at the time. The Pharisees test here, what they're testing in Jesus is whether Jesus is the Messiah of triumphalism that they're awaiting. One who has come to defeat their enemies and bring glory for themselves, for their people groups. N.T. Wright puts it this way, the Pharisees are eager for a sort of signs that could only be signs of the wrong kind of kingdom. This is why Jesus so adamantly rejects their request. What they're asking for in a sign from heaven is something that would cancel out the past three stories of his compassion and love and ministry for the Gentiles. In effect, Jesus is saying in, their, in his, re, his rejection of their request, the Messiah of your triumphalist delusions is never going to come as you see fit. And in fact, in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 10, he is gonna say, the people that will bring the signs that you want will only lead to your destruction that they are false messiahs, they are false Christ, they're antichrists and anti, they're false prophets. You want somebody who's gonna come and, and buy into your political vision of what Israel is meant to be. And I'm telling you, that's not who I am. And the people that bring you the thing that you want are not to be listened to. So Jesus is saying, do you want, you want, a, you want a sign? You want a sign from heaven? You want a, a miracle that shows you that, that the Messiah has come and his kingdom's inaugurated? Look back over the chapter, what, what are we? Seven and eight chapters of my miracles and what I've been doing. So that you might clearly see that this, this triumph that I'm bringing is not one that comes to the destruction of my enemies, but my compassion and care and healing for them. 
It comes through me not casting out the unclean, but in making the unclean clean. You see, the true enemy is not the Gentiles, but it is the, the prince of power, the darkness of this world that is not just on them, but on you. And if you don't see that, then you don't understand what's going on. You see, the Pharisees are blind to the seven, eight chapters of the signs of the kingdom of heaven all around them as they're asking for a sign from heaven as they see it. The Pharisees are blind to the true Messiah sitting on this boat right in front of them as they demand one who meets their expectations, this Messiah of triumph over the Gentiles. So then that question that I asked of why this story right after the feeding of the 4,000 of the Gentiles, Mark's purpose is clear. He's continuing the theme of the Messiah's relationship to the Gentiles, those outside of the covenant of Israel and the Jewish people groups. That Jesus has come to redeem Israel and triumph over the nations, not through their destruction, but through his compassion and through his inclusion and invitation for them to join his kingdom movement. This is what the triumph of the king actually looks like. So this story here of Jesus, them asking for a sign and Jesus rejecting it is not about Jesus rejecting people struggling with doubt. It's Jesus rejecting people who demand that Jesus be to them what they want him to be. So it says he leaves them. They've rejected Jesus through their assumptions and expectations of him. So Jesus rejects them. And the stage is set for the coming chapters. Here we're halfway through the gospel of Mark of what's gonna happen when these Pharisees finally are tired of Jesus not being the Messiah they want and they finally pin him to a cross. But Jesus isn't done talking about the Pharisees, even though he's not with them. Now he's in the boat with his disciples, verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. The disciples forgot to bring bread. Right, And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. It was, you know, underneath somebody's seat. Judas was sitting on it or something like that. And so Jesus, they're sitting at the bread. They're kind of beginning to talk about bread. And, and Jesus cautioned them. He said, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So what the heck is, is leaven, first of all? Leaven, a yeast or a leavening agent. Everybody like COVID, you know, we're locked in our houses. Everybody's making sourdough. And so you either get a starter as your leavening agent or maybe you go buy some yeast at the store. I remember yeast was one of these things that we could not get our hands on early on uh, when all the grocery stores were picked over. That yeast for some reason was the thing that I couldn't find anywhere. It's because everybody was, was making bread. And so if you've made bread over this year, you know exactly how this works. You take flour and a little bit of water, maybe some salt, and then you bring in yeast or a starter some leavening and it makes its way through the rest of this pile of flour. It transforms it into something that it was not before. And so this was a common metaphor in Jesus's day, specifically among the rabbis like Jesus for the infectious power of evil that a little bit slowly makes its way through the entire thing. Paul uses this metaphor in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians talking about how sin makes its way through a community, specifically the church. But in this case, he's talking about the Pharisees, which other times he'll talk about the leaven of the Pharisees and he's talking about their teaching or their hypocrisy. But here he pairs it with Herod. Did you catch that? Where did Herod come in, right? This whole time we've been talking about Pharisees and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, by the way, and the leaven of Herod. It's difficult to discern because the Pharisees and Herod don't share much in common. The Pharisees are this really pious, at least externally so, religious crowd, and Herod's anything but. What do they share in common? Well, if we've read the, the story before this with the Pharisees rightly and their triumphalist visions, it clicks into place. 
Dr. Kim Huat Tan. He's a professor at uh, Trinity College in Singapore. His commentary on Mark is incredible. He wrote this in 2015. It's a great explanation of Herod and what's going on here and uh, oddly prophetic. Listen to this. How does Herod fit into all of this? Herod's vision may be seen as representing the non-Jewish viewpoint of triumphalism, where to rule means to exercise power. In this landscape, religion serves only to bolster one's political position and may be conveniently sidelined or violently removed when that religion calls into question the ruler's ethics. The kingdom is not about political intrigue or eliminating one's opponents to seize power. The irony is both the Pharisees and Herod, bitter enemies as they may be, actually have similar kingdom visions. They want something that's openly glorious with the vindication of their own group and the elimination of their enemies. It becomes clear why the imperative that the pure bread of the kingdom must not be corrupted by the yeast of triumphalism and narrow-mindedness. He is driving point this home here that, that Pharisees and Herod, as similar as they may be, have both bought into a vision of triumphalism. Our group, us against you, and we will win in the end, whether that's through our political intrigue or through us awaiting this triumphalist Messiah. I mean, in just a year of me being here, I have kept hitting on this same theme repeatedly. My first sermon here when I was just a guest preacher and y'all didn't even know that I had gotten the job yet was talking about the Build a Bear or Build a Jesus workshop. Earlier this year, talking about stretch Armstrong Jesus and the ways that we shape Jesus according to our self-interest. Here in this story, Mark, Jesus speaking is saying, I want you to beware of the blindness that comes when you shape me according to your self-interest. And in particular, your triumphalism, your destruction of your enemies, the elimination of your enemies and the vindication and the you being raised up at their expense. This is a dangerous warning of when we seek to fit Jesus within our political partisanship. You see, the kingdom of heaven is not about us versus them, but what we find in the life and work and teachings of Jesus is actually us with and for them. That we come with a posture of compassion and a posture of feeding and healing and loving everything that we've seen within Jesus in the same time. And so that doesn't mean that we become those people that we're with. That's not at all what we're calling for here. What we're calling for here is a faithful remnant where we come as a holy person, but our holiness is never for the sake of looking down and awaiting their destruction, but rather entering in with what's happened through Jesus in us so that we might bring them to him. There is a great danger, Jesus says, in the blindness of triumphalism, either when you look down on others because you religiously have it all together in the case of the Pharisees or with you with Herod in your political reign. Both are like a yeast, a little bit within your heart or within a community will spread. And so Jesus says, beware. Because the danger is that you in rejecting him will be rejected by him, that he will leave you as he left the Pharisees. But we're not done talking about the blindness here. We've just talked about the blindness of triumphalism. Let's keep going with the disciples in the boat in verse 16. And they began, the disciples began discussing with another the fact that they don't have any bread. So notice, don't, don't miss that because we just talked between the two verses. Jesus says, watch out, beware the leaven. Like watch out, beware. He hits it twice. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they go on and they start talking about what we're gonna have for lunch. 
Did you notice? It's just like Jesus like, hey, this is danger. Beware, big deal. And they're kind of like, so is it Olive Garden or what do you want? Like, and they're trying to figure out where they're going to go. They're preoccupied with lunch plans. This is so realistic. So what does Jesus say to them? Jesus, aware of this, aware of their, that they're just completely missing it right now. He says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Think back to when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he looks them in the eyes and goes, do you not yet understand? All of this together is saying, you guys just don't get it. You guys are whining about bread after seeing me feed thousands twice over with proportionately less. We're being invited into a second sort of blindness here. Unlike the blindness of triumphalism in the Pharisees, there is a blindness of forgetfulness that we see here in the disciples. You see, they're anxious over lunch after they've witnessed two times that Jesus is fed with proportionately less for thousands of people. They've seen him walk on water at this point, calming storms. They've seen him done countless healings and they're making, well, we, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't know what we're gonna do for lunch today. Jesus says, you guys, it's like you're unable to perceive. You're unable to understand. Your hearts are hardened. You're blind and deaf. All why in the final line, he says, because you do not remember. Discovering Jesus and the work of what we're called to do as disciples of Jesus, like the disciples here, is much like putting together this uh, puzzle portrait. You know, if we had like a, a puzzle that was like the face of Jesus, with all of these countless pieces. And in order to see Jesus rightly, it requires of us that we not only have all of the right pieces, but that we have them here. And we're able to put them all in together so we might see who Jesus clearly is. The problem is, is that the disciples in this story and you and I are just like my little daughter, Emma, who just in her forgetfulness, we just find puzzle pieces all over the house. We find them in the couch, under the couch. We find them in her bed. We find them in my shoes. We find them outside. We find them inside. But they're everywhere and anywhere but the box. And when the time comes for us to put together the puzzle of, of Cinderella or Ariel or whoever, we don't have nearly enough pieces. And so we have all of these blank spots. We can't see the picture fully. This is what's happening here is it's like the disciples have in their little puzzle kit that they've gotten of Jesus is two puzzle pieces about him feeding people. And they've thrown those out and forgotten those. And so here they are looking at the portrait of Jesus and they don't know what they're gonna do about bread because they don't have the corresponding pieces that will remind them of who Jesus is and what he's able to do in this moment. The disciples and the day-to-day -day needs of just lunch have forgotten just going through the normal rhythms of the day, everything they know about the Jesus who's in the boat with them right now. And the end result of this is they are just as blind as the Pharisees. Well, you could see this is that the Pharisees in the previous stories is the Pharisees were demanding the wrong thing of Jesus. The disciples here are expecting nothing from Jesus. The Pharisees, Jesus' response was, you're never gonna get the sign you want. To, G to the disciples, Jesus says, how many signs do you need? 
Jesus does this math exercise, trying to recount with them the previous two feedings of what's been going on. He's trying to jog their memory. Do you guys not see it? Do you guys not have the puzzle pieces? I've given them to you. Where are they? Here, let's go, let's go walk around the house. And where did you see them last? And let's, okay, let's put them back. Think back. Don't you remember? Don't you understand? Don't you see the portrait that I am and have everything that you need to be satisfied? The fact that this comes right after him feeding the 4,000 may seem unrealistic or even comedic to you and me. But how often do we as disciples, for those of us that identify as a follower of Jesus, struggle? And our struggle is sourced in our forgetfulness of who Jesus is. For myself, I know in my life, so much of the anxiety that I face, that I incur, that develops from within me, often comes when I have forgotten some crucial piece in the portrait of who Jesus is. And peace in that moment comes as I re, you know, go dig out that puzzle piece in the sock drawer or wherever it might've been, and I put it back into place and I remember, yes, this is who Jesus is. That I meditate on this, this little puzzle piece as it's clicked into the larger thing. This is who Jesus is. And I allow this portrait of Jesus to be the thing that brings me peace because my anxiety was rooted in that absence. Even more than just anxiety and seeing it myself, the whole book of Deuteronomy, Moses, as he's with Israel, they're about to go into the promised land. He gives one last kind of locker room speech sermon and over and over and over and over again. I think it's over 25 times over the book. It's almost more than each chapter. He's constantly hitting on, don't forget the works of the Lord. Remember the works of the Lord. Don't forget what God has done for you. Don't forget what God has done for you. Remember what God has done for you because if you forget, you will rebel against God. You will sin. So it's not just that our anxiety is rooted in us forgetting and not having the full portrait, but even when we go into rebellion and sin against God, it's because we have forgotten some crucial piece of the portrait of who Jesus is to us. I would even argue that Israel's triumphalism, what we were just talking about a moment ago, is actually grounded in them forgetting the works of the Lord of what they had done for them. That they had remembered, yes, that we've been chosen by Yahweh, but we forgot that we are meant to be a blessing to the nations. That we forgot the fact that we are actually just one of the nations, chosen by grace. We forgot about the Exodus and the story of God's faithfulness to us when we were enslaved. And so we, but they had, they had forgotten the works of the Lord. And in doing so, they had slipped into another sort of blindness. You see, so much of the problems that we have within our lives is not necessarily the fact that we need something new to keep us going, but the fact that we just need to remember the old things that have been done to us. Maybe what you and I have needed in 2020 to really get us through this year is not the experience of something new, but rather remembering the things that are old. To stop and reflect and recount the works of the Lord. Maybe remembering the works of the Lord in Christ. The puzzle piece of every single day and, and throughout the day, trying to bring those puzzle pieces back and remember the ministry of Jesus in moments like this text, the cross and the death of Jesus and what he has done through that death for you and for me. His resurrection and what that means about death and what about the future of all things. His ascension, the fact that he is now currently at the right hand of the Father, that he is interceding and praying for you and me. Man, do you want boldness in your life and a lack of fear? Just remembering on a regular basis, right now, Jesus is praying for me. 
that at Pentecost, that Jesus sent his Holy Spirit into his disciples, into you and me, that literally the spirit of God resides within me, empowering me to be the sort of human that he has called me to be, that Jesus is returning to set all things right. When I've got these puzzle pieces here, there's not much anxiety that can come at me. Speaking of, of, of more, not necessarily clinical or biological anxiety disorders, I'm speaking of the, the normal rhythms of anxiety that we get wrapped up in. Similarly, not just remembering the works of the Lord in Christ, but remembering the works of the Lord in our own life of recounting over however old you are, the years and thinking about when God showed up and there was provision and you didn't think that it was gonna be there. When God showed up and there was healing, when you thought it was just gonna get worse. When God showed up and there was guidance when you didn't know which way out. When God showed up and you found peace in the midst of your anxiety and fear or even recounting what we called it in youth group back in the day is your testimony. The story of how you went from blind to seeing because of some moment when God through his spirit met you and you saw Jesus for the first time. This is the sort of portrait work that the disciples are missing out on at some level right here. They don't have the resurrection. They don't have the cross, but they have enough pieces here that something like where lunch is gonna come from should not be an, an, an issue of anxiety for them. In the same way, you and I have been given far more puzzle pieces than the disciples have at this point of who Jesus is truly and what he's done for you and me, that there ought to be a source where we dig up those puzzle pieces, we put them back together, we see Jesus for who he is, and in doing so, we recount the work. We do what the psalmist says in Psalm 63. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you on the watches of the night, you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. When I remember you, I remember the fact that you have been with me. Your hand upholds me, that you have helped me. And it brings this joy. You see, this is the response of the disciples and what they're missing here is their blindness comes from forgetfulness and the way to heal this is to remember. The good news though is that Jesus doesn't just demand that you remember and that you do your homework and that you go back and recount everything. There's great hope in the three times he uses the word not yet. He's not gonna leave us in our spiritual short-term memory loss. He pulls the boat over in an attempt to help them and us understand what we need most. 22 and 26, as we begin to wrap up. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to Jesus, this blind man, and they begged Jesus, Rabbi, will you, will you touch this man? Will you heal him? And so Jesus takes the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, obviously with the blind man and his disciples there with him. And it says, when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and he goes, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. He sent him home saying to him, do not even enter the village. Again, some of the messianic secret stuff we've talked about in the past. But this strange two-part healing, two-part healing is strange for a number of reasons. One of them is why, why the spit? Uh, I'm gonna actually, so we don't have to spend too much time on this in the Q and A uh, today, talk about this. It's actually Jesus going after the propaganda of uh, Caesar. Um, so you have to come to the Q&A at four on Instagram for that. It's incredible. Um, but what it, the more interesting thing is why the two stages all throughout Mark, it's just been like superhero Jesus. Ba-ba, ba-ba, he's healing people left and right with a touch. They touch his clothes. He looks at him with a word. He's healing people. And here it's kind of like he's like low on divine mojo is what it feels like. Like he, he ran out of his divine power after feeding the 4,000. It doesn't seem that that's what's going on here, but rather that Jesus, Jesus is, 
is healing this person in the process, using him in a way as a teaching prop. After just talking to the disciples, do you have eyes, but you don't see? Do you not understand and perceive? Here we have this blind man who only now eyes open, only partially sees and in need of full restoration. The disciples are just like this blind man. They see Jesus, but blurry. They don't see him for who he really is. As we recount all the stories we've been through today, they all come together in power in a powerful way, as we see it, the final here thing is it's not just the disciples that are blind like this man. It's that everybody in the whole story has been blind and in need of Jesus's healing touch. There's no insider. There's nobody that's got the inside scoop and the vision on who Jesus really is. The Gentiles, the outsiders, they needed Jesus to come to fix their ignorance of the fact that they hadn't seen God or Jesus. They've been following after false gods and their own thing. And Jesus comes and goes, what you actually need is me. It's a moment where their eyes were opened as they were satisfied and set free. Similarly, the Pharisees, are just, they're blind and in need of seeing Jesus. Blinded, not by their ignorance, but rather their triumphalism and their political visions of what they wanna do with this world. And the disciples are blinded by their forgetfulness. Everybody in this story, sees Jesus either in absolute darkness and they can't see it at all, or it's blurry and Jesus looks like a tree walking around. Everyone in the story fails to see Jesus fully. And everyone who is watching this and in this room, we fail to see Jesus fully. Whether nothing but darkness or blurry tree people. We may be blind to the fullness of God as we like the disciples are blinded through our forgetfulness. This is healed like we just talked about. As we remember all the works of the Lord, we put together the pieces of his faithfulness. We go back through our lives and throughout the scriptures and throughout history and we drag up the stories of the faithfulness of Jesus and who he is. And as we do, we see the fullness of Jesus. We might be blind to the mission of Jesus like the Pharisees and their triumphalism. This is healed as we receive Jesus for who he is and we reject and repent of even us shaping him into who we want him to be. In particular, as we go next week, Peter's gonna have to work through this for himself because he thinks like the Pharisees and he is gonna have to see from Jesus that the true triumph of the true Messiah Jesus comes not through the destruction of his enemies, but sacrificial love of his enemies, the opposite of triumphalism. And then finally, as we saw with the outsiders in the beginning, a blindness to the satisfaction of Jesus. This is healed for us as Jesus blesses and breaks, just like the bread there in the desolate place in the wilderness, the bread of what he would call at the last supper, the bread of his own body, broken for you, the bread that he referred to being his body on the cross. And like the crowd in this story, it is this miraculous bread which was also motivated in his compassion. And just like in this story, it satisfies us. And just like in this story, Jesus from this sets us free. That this is the sort of thing is is you wanna see Jesus fully. What it remembers is you remember what you've seen so far, what you've reflected on so far. If you wanna truly see Jesus, repent of and, and reject trying to pin Jesus onto something that he, trying to form him into your own image. And you wanna see Jesus fully is to see at the center point of history is the Jesus who allowed his body to be broken, his blood shed, so that you might be satisfied, so that you might be set free. This is how we see Jesus fully. And so the life of discipleship, of following Jesus, is continually discovering Jesus, remembering his works, receiving him for who he is, and being filled full and satisfied by his life given for us. In the next two weeks, 
We're going to find Jesus continuing to heal the, the blindness of the disciples and our own blindness as we arrive at the mountain that's going to change everything. But for today, let's pray and go into a time of response.